The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel.
Today's sermon is pre-recorded. Can revival be prayed down? Almighty God, as I speak the word that you've put on my heart, would you quicken us in your spirit? And we will give you all the honor and the glory and the praise. In the name of Jesus, amen. Peter and John are walking into the service where now thousands are gathering to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. And as they do so, they have to pass through the gate beautiful. And there is that beggar, and they say, Silver or gold have I not, but such as I have I give unto you. But of course, in the verses just prior to that, it's very clear that men and women have been coming up to them and laying bags of coins at their feet. It's not a money problem. They could give the beggar any amount of money they needed to give him. But instead of mounting a rescue operation, instead of inviting him to come to a homeless dinner, instead of doing a humanitarian act, they said, look, we don't have anything to give you. But what we have, we will give you. Rise up and walk. And that man came up out of his mess. And he was set free. And he went rejoicing with the disciples into the meeting, testifying gloriously that he was saved, that God had moved on his heart, had healed his body, had totally restored him. Now, there was a very adverse reaction to this amongst the Pharisees and the leading party of the priesthood. So immediately in chapter 4, we find the priests and the captain of the temple guard, the Sadducees, they come up to Peter and John. You can see them very officiously walking up with their robes just right. And they come walking up and with their self-righteousness, they begin in a very angry way to seize Peter and John. But many believed what had happened and believed the word. And in verse 4, the number of men grew to about 5,000. Now you recognize probably another 5,000 women and children. Suddenly we're looking at a church body that has grown from 120 people almost overnight. They are 15,000 people strong. It was a church born in a day. It was birthed by the Holy Spirit. It wasn't birthed by a campaign of marketing. It wasn't birthed by having 40 days of purpose. It wasn't birthed by going out and passing out tracts to everybody at the metro station. It was birthed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, with this church being birthed, we have to look for a moment at what happened with the disciples. They're brought before this council. They're very angry. And they say in verse 7, by what power or what name did you do this? And Peter's filled with the Holy Spirit, and he says to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple, 
and are asked how it was, how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, and this man stands before you healed. Now, one of the most astonishing and controversial statements of the entire New Testament is before us. Verse 12, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. So there are not many ways into the kingdom of heaven. There is one way into the kingdom of heaven, and that is through Jesus Christ. And so the Muslims, there are many fine Muslims, upright, living moral lives, performing acts of charity. My neighbor, who's a Muslim, just told me, he said, I've just sent a large amount of money to help the Afghan people. I said, how did you do it? He said, oh, there was a a soldier going over. And so I just gave him the money and said, give it to whoever you find that needs it. No recognition, no, no glory. Just take it over there and pass it out. Well, that's a wonderful act of kindness on his behalf. He could have used that large sum of money for his children for his family. But Allah is not the way into the kingdom of heaven. Buddha is not the way into the kingdom of heaven. There is one way in, and his name is Jesus. And it is through repentance from crucifying Jesus that we enter into that kingdom. This was not sugar. This was salt. This was right up close confrontation with the very people who had murdered Jesus Christ. These were the same people. But Peter, having no fear for his life, boldly speaks and says, it is in the name of Jesus, his name. Now, they saw that Peter was an unschooled and ordinary man. You know how they could tell? He spoke in that Galilean brogue. He killed the king's English. He was a common man. He was not an educated man. He was a fisherman. But Jesus had said, I'm going to make you into a fisher of men. And now we see the evidence. They take note that these men had been with Jesus in verse 13. Has anyone this past week taken note that you've been with Jesus? Has it been obvious? Has there been the glow of God's glory on your face in spite of all of your faults? Is there glory of God shining out of you? Or is the world shining out of you? I couldn't help but pray as I read this chapter and say, Oh God, oh God. I need your glory to shine out of my face. I need your glory to shine from my face. I need men and women to be able to look at me 
Listen to my word of testimony. Watch my deeds and say, that man has been with Jesus. That man has been in the presence of Almighty God. They don't know what to do with him. They command them not to speak in verse 18 or to teach in the name of Jesus, but Peter and John reply right back, judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. And then they say, for we cannot help speaking about what we've seen and heard. I want to stop there just a minute. None of you can help speaking about what you've seen and heard. The question is, what are you speaking about? You are speaking about what you've seen and heard. You're speaking about the redskins. You're speaking about the cars. You're speaking about the job. You're speaking about whatever it is you've seen and heard. If you have seen and heard more of Jesus than anything else, then you'll speak about Jesus. That requires that time in the prayer closet. That requires the reading of Scripture because that's where you go to find Jesus. Have you ever just said, I need to go be in the presence of Jesus? And you go into your prayer closet. You go into that place where you meet him. And you just sit there. You don't say anything. You don't need to. You're just in his presence. You know he's there. He knows you're there. And you're just saying, could I be with you? I mean, what parent in this house does not enjoy having a child come up and say, Daddy, could I just be with you? Not, Daddy, could I have this and could I have that? Daddy, I've got this problem and Daddy, I've got that problem. Daddy, you're not treating me fairly. I need you to treat me different. I need what I need now. I mean, what a difference when the child just says, Daddy, can I be with you? I won't talk. I won't say anything, Jesus. I just want to be with you. Just to sit in his presence. But let's move because this is not what the Lord's asked me to speak about. The question at hand is, can revival be prayed down? And suddenly, suddenly, in the book of Acts, we run right into the first revival in the Christian church, unsuspecting, not even really being looked for. Just suddenly, revival comes in the body. Watch how it comes. Chapter 4 of the book of Acts. On their release... Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. There has never been in the history of the Christian church one revival that has come without a people praying for it. Every revival that has ever come in the Christian church has been prayed down. It has never happened simply because it happened. God doesn't work that way. It always comes in response to prayer. And now 
They're praying, and it's terribly important to see what they prayed about, because that then will become a model for us. Sovereign Lord. Sovereign Lord, they said. You made the heaven and the earth, the sea and everything in them. Do you see what they're doing? They're saying, Sovereign Lord, you're the one in authority over my life. You're the one in authority over your church. Now, you recognize that the 120 were filled with the Holy Spirit. But now they're a congregation of 15,000 people. They have not yet been filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. They need revival. They're living godly lives. They are being taught the word of God. But they are not filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. Watch what happens. You spoke in verse 25 by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord, against his anointed one. In other words, they're recognizing this is a battle between good and evil. And they're saying, why does the evil keep coming against you, O God? There is no excuse for evil to come against Almighty God. If there were a reason for sin, it would not be sin. If there could be an explanation for sin, it would not be sin. It is simply rebellion. And this church is recognizing that there is absolutely no reason for sin. There is no excuse for sin. And I, for one, have excused myself so many times for my sin. I've said, God, you know, I'm just that way. You know, God, I can't help it. You know how hard I try, God. I'll just keep trying to do my best, God. And he says, no, stop trying to do your best and just get to the cross. Get this thing over with. Die out. Be resurrected in the fullness of Jesus. Verse 27, indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Now, doesn't Jesus know this already? Of course. Then why are they praying it? They're not informing God. They're agreeing with God. They're coming in agreement with the truth as it's shared by the gospel according to the apostles. This is vital. Revival will never come until we have agreed with the scriptures. When we agree with God about our sin, our sin will be dealt with. As long as we make excuses for our sin, there will be no revival. It demands an agreement with God. They were agreeing. Verse 28, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats. Enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And after they prayed, the place where they were meeting 
was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Now, I want you to see the sign that revival has come. Verse 32, all the believers were one in heart and mind. Revival brings God's people into total unity. And that unity cannot be broken by the devil. It brings the children into unity with the father. It brings the adults into unity. Elijah said, according to the book of Malachi, hearts of the children would be turned to the fathers, and the hearts of the fathers would be turned to the children. That's a sign of revival. That's unity. Now look at the unity. See how it was worked out. No one claimed that any of his possessions were his own. But they shared everything they had. No, they didn't move into a commune. They just said, okay, all that I have belongs to Jesus. Jesus, how do you want to use it? It's yours. I give it to you. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned lands or, household, or houses sold them, brought the money from the sale, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to everyone as he had need. That was what was going on in revival. No longer was a person saying, I've got to hoard this for the future, because the future was now. The future was Jesus Christ. Everything in the future was taken care of. They were going to heaven. They didn't need a heaven here. Someone said to me yesterday, Pastor, when are you going to buy a house? I said, when Jesus buys the house. Well, they said, what are you going to do for retirement if you're not building equity in a house? I said, I'm not retiring. You're what? I'm going to serve Jesus till I die. He is my provision. I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to stay steady at the plow. I don't have time to go play golf. I don't have time to move to a retirement community and get up in the morning and watch the morning news and then get in my little golf cart and steer it around. I'm sorry, I've got a job to do. I've been assigned by Jesus, and I'm going to do the same thing Moses did. When I'm ready, when Jesus says, your work is finished, I'm going to lay down and I'm going to die. And if I have more than six pence in my pocket when I die, you'll know I'm a thief and a robber. I'm not saving for the future. The future is now. I've been brought into the kingdom of heaven now. And that future day over there, they don't require money over there. You go to the tree of life and pick. You don't have to have the bank account in heaven. When you begin to look at life in this manner and you begin to see what Jesus Christ is doing, you begin to recognize that he wants to supply our need. He wants to supply our need. Do you know how to touch heaven's throne for your financial need? 
If you don't, you're in trouble. Because you're going to think that it's up to you. And if it's up to you, you're lighting your own torches and you're going to lie down in torment. He's our source. He provides for us. You go to the job, not for the money. You go to the job to testify that Jesus Christ is the risen Lord. You go to confront darkness. You go to proclaim Jesus Christ and him crucified. Let's be very straight. As long as we are content with life as we know it, Revival will not come. There must come a sharp dissatisfaction with life as it is. There must come a soul searching, a soul longing for the anointing power of the Holy Spirit. Over and over, as I've read the histories of revival, there's been a a dying of the body of Christ. There have been fewer and fewer attending. There's been a, a growing dissatisfaction among those who are coming as they see the coldness of heart. And they begin to cry out to the Lord. And as they begin to cry out to the Lord... He opens the heavens and sends with booming thunder a revival where suddenly 50, 100,000 people are swept into the body of Christ. And it happens without any of the gimmicks and the techniques. It happens by the glorious name of Jesus. Now, for most of us, we've never seen this. All I've been able to do is read about it. But in the reading about it, a dissatisfaction has arisen in my heart. I'm not willing to put up with what I've gone through to this point. I've laid aside all the marketing strategies. I've laid aside all the community outreach programs. Now I want Jesus. I want the power of the Holy Spirit. Is that your heart? Then go with me, and let's look at several passages of Scripture. I pray that they will cut your heart as they have cut mine. Psalm 66, verse 18. Psalm 66, verse 18. If I had cherished sin in my heart the Lord would not have listened. If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. If you are cherishing sin in your heart today, God will not hear your prayer for revival. And so the first step for praying down a revival is not to pray for revival. Because we're not where the New Testament church was. The first step in praying down a revival is to begin a soul-searching process. Asking the Lord to search our hearts and uncover all sin 
Now, Isaiah 59 says the same thing, but let's go there quickly. We have to hear it. Isaiah, the 59th chapter. I'll begin reading with verse 1. Isaiah 59, Isaiah 59, beginning with verse 1. Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. In other words, the arm of the Lord is not too short to save your family. The arm of the Lord is not too short to save the city of Washington, D.C., This is not God having a problem because he's weak. His ear is not dull. He hears and sees all that is in your heart. But your iniquities, verse 2, have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. In other words, God will not hear our prayers if we hold iniquity in our heart. Now, you may want to just take a notepad and pen, go into the presence of the Lord and begin to read the scriptures. Begin to pray as you're given utterance. And those things that immediately become become a part of your mind, you'll suddenly think about what you said to so-and-so. That's a sin that will separate you from God. You begin to think about when you stole something. That will separate you from God. You begin to think about the attitude of your heart. Every time you go into the prayer closet and you begin to read the scripture and you're going to try to pray. And a recognition of, of coldness in your heart comes up. That's sin. And God's exposing it. He's not trying to bring condemnation on you. He's trying to bring you to repentance. As you go into that prayer closet and as you begin to try to read the scriptures and your eyes are heavy and you grow sleepy, it's because the Holy Spirit is not quickening you. And the reason he's not quickening you is you've been feasting at the table of demons. And you can't feast at the table of demons and at the table of the Lord as well. And you have to very quickly make a decision. Am I going to close this and go about my worldly life? Or am I going to deal with this sleepiness in my spirit? And will I begin to confess to the Lord my sleepiness because I have been satiated by the world and have no taste for the things of Almighty God? those things that keep rising up in our hearts, those are the things the Holy Spirit is trying to bring to us to say, will you give that to me? I'll break its power over your life. I'll restore you. I'll cleanse you. I'll wash you by the blood. And I'll bring you through it. Sometimes as you begin to read the word, you become very conscious of an anger that's in your heart. You feel you've been mistreated by somebody. And suddenly will come to your mind all of those rehearsed words that you spoke after that perceived mistreatment. Those faces you made will come. They'll all come back up. Now it's an opportunity to confess them. Listen, sin is never confessed 
as sin. Do you hear what I'm saying? Sin is confessed as a specific item. There is no such thing as generic sin. Sin is specific. It's only name brand sin. And we've got to put a name on it. Rebellion is rebellion. But rebellion is usually even much more specific. It's rebellion and refusal to allow God to take this item out of my life. It's rebellion when I refuse to allow God to remove from my spirit that bitterness that digs deep into my heart. But that's even more specific. The bitterness in my heart when my spouse deals with me in a certain way. Sin is always name brand, always specific. When you get down on your knees and you say, Lord, forgive me for all my sins, you might as well have said, now lay me down to sleep. Because God's not going to hear. You're playing games with God. God deals in specifics. Cain, where's your brother? Adam and Eve, where are you hiding? Achan, what have you done? Confess what you've done. I took the Babylonian robe. I saw the gold. I took it. I coveted it. Now, I also want you to be very clear that confession is not repentance. Achan confessed his sin, but Achan did not repent of his sin. In other words, he said, I'm guilty. And God said, stone him to death. Had he said, I'm guilty. I confess my sin. Please forgive me. I'll no longer walk this way. Under the gospel system, the new covenant, there would have been a very different response. His sin would have been wiped away. And he would have been restored to the body. Verse 2, chapter 59, verse 2. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. For your hands are stained with blood, your fingers with guilt. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wicked Things. I particularly ask that the young people remain behind today and be a part of this service. Because when mom or dad say something to you, do you begin to mutter under your breath? And do you begin to say wicked things under your breath? Is there a spirit of rebellion that rises up and refuses to accept correction? But instead, there's this muttering of wicked things. I'll get even. When I'm big, you'll find out. Just watch. I'll get you. Someday, I'm not going to be under your control. I'm going to go do my own thing. You're well on your way to being the prodigal. You're well on your way, young person, to the pig pen, where you'll eat the husks of pigs. And I call you today 
to lay aside the muttering of wicked things under your breath when you're corrected. For Jesus hears that muttering. But now I have to also say, which of us as adults have not muttered wicked things under our breath when we're corrected, when the Lord corrects us with his rod of discipline, and we say, why is God treating me this way? It's not fair. God shouldn't be treating me this way. Muttering wicked things under your breath. And God hears that wickedness. And he won't answer your prayers when you're muttering wicked things under your breath. But I want to go back to verse 3. Your hands are stained with blood, your fingers with guilt. You know, I've read that passage so many times, and I've always said, Lord, thank you that that one doesn't count for me. Thank you that I've never murdered anybody. Thank you that at least one area I know I'm clear. This week the Lord said, oh, oh, Matthew, the fifth chapter, verse 21. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Ratka or Reka, you know what that equivalent is in English? Stupid. How could you be so dumb? Any of you parents said to your children, How could you be so dumb? Now, where's your judgment? When will you grow up? You've just murdered your child. Do you know what I actually have heard fathers say in the last week? The child has come to the father. And the father has said, get away from me. I need some time. Get away from me. Leave me alone. Can't you give me one moment of silence? That parent just murdered that child. There's blood on your hands. There's blood on your hands. You see, the Lord is saying to us, if anyone says you fool, you will be in the danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. If you have spoken with harshness, with anger, in scorn to another human person, You are at odds with that person, and your hands are covered with blood. And God will not hear your prayers. If you rage and scream at your husband or your wife, if you yell at your kids, there's blood on your hands. If you yell at your boss, even if it's quiet in your spirit, if you scorn other people, There's blood on your hands. 
And God will not hear your cry. And revival will not come. The Lord is asking us to allow his spirit to search our hearts in these areas. And to get cleaned up before him. He's not called us to be filled with rage and anger. He's called us to have bowels moved with compassion. I'm not suggesting here that a parent should not have firm boundaries in relationship with children, that parents should not establish those boundaries in love and kindness and enforce them. I'm not suggesting that. But once those boundaries have been established and adequate discipline has been established to keep those boundaries firm, there need be no yelling. If you yell... You've sinned before God. Do you see this? It could be a yell in your spirit, or it can be a yell out of your mouth. It doesn't matter which. It's both sin. It's, I'm not getting what I want, and believe me, I'm going to get out of this what I want. And you're going to do it my way, or it's a highway. There's the door if you don't like it. I mean, how would you feel sitting here today if I said to you, you know, you either do this Pastor Ray's way or hit the highway? That'd be inappropriate. It's do it Jesus' way or go to hell. Who am I to put myself in the place of God in relationship to your soul? And who are you to put yourself in the place of God in judgment of your mom and dad? Who are you to put yourself in the place of God in judgment of your child? Children do not belong to us. They belong to Jesus Christ. And he says they always have access to the Father's face, to the face of Jesus. Don't have your children going to the Father and praying that he'll deal with your heart because you've treated them in such a way that their heart is broken and they weep. Let's go also to the book of James. Let's lay it out. Chapter 1, verse 22. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourself. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives liberty, freedom, continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. His religion is worthless. It's a pretense. It's false. It's a culture. God has called us to not have blood on our hands, to not sin with our mouths, with our hearts. This spirit of accusation and judgment that so quickly rises in the hearts of God's people is sin. It makes the church unsafe to be a part of. It makes it unsafe to pray. 
because someone's going to listen to my prayer and judge me that I don't pray appropriately. One man said to me, I haven't prayed in probably 20 years, Pastor. I said, why not? He said, I'm always judged when I pray. And somebody will come to me after the service and correct me. So I stopped praying. To understand this spirit of accusation and judgment where we mutter under our breath, where we accuse one another, where we judge one another. This spirit of judgment and accusation has to be broken where we judge our children, where we accuse our children. It has to be broken. Where children accuse their parents of of being hard and not being enough and not pleasing them. This spirit of accusation has to be broken. It comes straight from the devil's heart. The scriptures tell us that Satan is the accuser. God does not accuse. He asks questions. And his questions expose our hearts. And he does it gently. We could learn by that. Oh, come on, pastor. That takes time. Don't you have eternity? Don't you have eternity? Is there a shortage of time? Is that because the world is first? When the world is first, there's always a shortage of time. When Jesus is first, there's never a shortage of time because we have eternity. And everything is in his hands. He has control over every small detail of our lives. Now, will you trust him or will you accuse him? Go to the third chapter. Verse 2, we all stumble in many ways. If anyone is never at fault in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to keep his whole body in check. I'm not a perfect man. I always say it wrong. You know, it's just something about me. I've tried to learn curiosity all of my life, but so many times judgment springs to my heart. I don't even need to think about it. My natural reaction is to say, Stupid, get out of my way. You know, I don't enjoy fools. That attitude, I've had to take to the cross and say, Jesus, you've carried me, and you don't want me to have that accusation spirit in my heart. So now look, verse 3. This is James 3rd chapter, verse 3. When we put bits into the mouth of a horse to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they're so large, they're driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder, wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire, By a small spark, the tongue is also a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. Look, it's what we say that's going to make the difference in how we act. 
Always our words flow first, and then our actions flow out of our words. And if our hands have blood on them, because of our words, our hands will also have blood because of our actions. All kinds of animals and birds and reptiles and creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by man. But no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise the Lord, our Father, and with our tongue we curse men who've been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth comes praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Revivals can be prayed down. But there's going to have to come a sharp discontent in our spirit with the way things are now. And there's going to have to begin a serious searching of every part of our heart and life with the Lord exposing the use of the tongue to bring blood on our hands. He wants a change in the way we speak to one another, in the way we speak to our husbands, in the way we speak to our wives, in the way we speak to our children, in the way children speak to their parents. Remember, the sign of the coming of the Holy Spirit is unity amongst the whole family and unity amongst the whole body. The sin has been dealt with. It's been confessed. It's been turned aside from. And the sweet springs of living water can flow forth from our lips with songs of praise and gladness unto the Lord. We no longer need to go about setting people right by giving them a piece of our mind. We no longer need to go about setting our children right by giving them a piece of our mind. And children, you no longer need to go about trying to get your parents to do what you want them to do with a nasty mouth and a poisoned tongue. The Lord is searching our hearts today. If you want revival, you're going to have to answer the question, what's the condition of your tongue? And is salt water pouring forth when it should be a spring of fresh water? Now, some of you have some confession to make. Confession to children. Children confession to parents. There needs to be confession at the workplace. There needs to be confession in every place where a brother or sister has been offended by you, where men and women have been distanced from you by your wicked tongue, I ask you to go into the presence of the Lord Jesus. Go into that prayer closet. Sit in the presence of our Master and ask Him, have I sinned against you with my tongue? And will that block revival from coming to your body? Ask him to bring a sharp discontent to your heart with conditions as they currently exist. 
Ask him to rouse you from the slumber. To cause you to seek after him with all your heart. To cry aloud to him that he might rescue you. That he might turn to you with mercy. And meet your need. Now let's pray. Spirit of the living God. Fall afresh. On your people. Turn your face toward us. And give us redeemed tongues. Lord, we want revival, but we'll not have it according to your word if we hold iniquity in our hearts. So, Lord, wash us. Give us the courage to repent and make restitution. Give us the courage, Lord God, to make restitution to our families and to others that we have wronged. Thank you, Jesus. I pray in your holy name. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress, brought to you by the National Prayer Chapel in Woodbridge, Virginia. Come join us at nationalprayerchapel.com or our sister website, revivalnow.church. God bless you. We love you. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy with great joy now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory